Welcome, everyone, to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell, profiling the people and the movements who are taking on some of the most important social issues of our times. Um, we're recording this pod on the morning of the 25th of October, the night after the reporting racism, um, journalism and impartiality event at the Houses of Parliament. And we are joined on this podcast by Marcus Ryder. Marcus Ryder, who was the editor of BBC Scotland Current Affairs for 24 years before taking up the position as Chief International Editor at China Global Television Network, China's largest broadcaster. He is also the Chair of the Royal Television Society Diversity Committee and writes the excellent blog Black on White TV. Marcus, welcome. Hello, how you doing? Long been a long time. Haven't seen you. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, thanks for coming on the pod. I really appreciate it. Um, first, last night's event, reporting racism. Um, tell us a little bit more about the event which you organised. Who was there, and and just some of the findings from that particular okay. event. Well, importantly, it was um, even though I helped initiate it and what have you, it was Race Beat um, and Running Me Trust that organised it. Um, Race Beat being a collection of um, journalists of colour, which is an absolutely brilliant organisation and running me trust that really needs no introduction. So, And it was hosted by um, Dawn Butler, the Shadow Minister for Equalities and Women. And uh, so it was fabulous. We got it done in just two weeks from just a tweet. I suggested that we needed to do this and then the response was was absolutely brilliant. And the panel who came on board were were great. You had... Um, Kerry Thomas, who was the ex-editor of the Today programme and ex-editor of Panorama. So that was great. You had um, Akhil Ahmed, who um, was head of multicultural programming at Channel 4 and was then head of religion at BBC. Um, You had um, Mukti Campion, who is an amazing radio producer, who I think it was 15 years ago wrote a groundbreaking academic work called Look Who's Talking and uh, that was about diversity in the media and what's really sad is that it could have been written yesterday. Um, So she was able to give us the long view. Um, uh, You had, um, uh, you know, Maya Goodfellow who is a brilliant author and journalist, you know, and you had Yasmin Alibi-Brown, the, you know, well-known columnist. Um, I'm just worried that I'm missing somebody out. Um, if I am, they'll come to me. Um, I've got a little bit of jet lag. But what was what was fantastic was that you had practitioners that weren't just talking about the theory. Um, they were talking about how difficult it is and with first-hand experience of grappling with complaints procedures, with actually how you do report racism, how you oversee your staff, how you actually report racism yourself. Um, the editorial, the nutty, um, real gritty um, issues when you're reporting and impartiality. So it was, it was really good because you find that sometimes it's incredibly easy to um, talk about these things in theory, but when you've actually been at the coalface and you've actually had to grapple with some of these issues, it gives you a different perspective. So it was amazing that we had those people there and the and the audience was also great because so many of them were either academics or practitioners and had so 
really good event. I mean, we're talking about diversity in the media and you, you uh, just remarked there that there was a, look who's talking, the report came out 24 years ago and things haven't changed. And you, you've been um, in the media for a long period of time, trying to affect change for a long, a long period of time. Why would you say there hasn't been that level of progression over the last few years in terms of diversity in the media? Um, I think there's been ebbs and flows. I think it'd be wrong um, to say that it's static, even though um, Mukti's um, uh, paper felt like it could have been written yesterday. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is there has been change. and But it's not a simple, linear, narrative progression. So when I um, first got into the media or first... I was a teenager and you had black film collectives like um, Black Audio Collective, you had Chedo, um, and that had great funding by the then GLC. And so you did get those alternative voices. And then when the GLC went, that funding went. So then it's about that source of money. You then also looked at, you had Africa Being Unit, you know, it's you had the Voice newspaper, so you had a, um, a great journalists who were working at the Voice, and then you also had journalists that were being trained at the Voice, um, and the Voice and New Nation acting as a pipeline to other parts of the media as well. So, unfortunately, in some ways, it's gone backwards because you don't have the Voice, you don't have Chedo Film Collective, um, but in other ways, you could say, well. They they died due to the fact that you were starting to get those stories into the into the mainstream. So it's it's not a simple one of saying that there hasn't been any progress. I would say there's been change, and some of that change might be positive, and some of that change might be negative. But there's definitely been change, and it's recognizing what that change has been so that we can actually get progress. Is the change? that's needed part of that to do with leadership um because obviously you would have had some you know i worked at the voice as well and you had some great people that um you know worked at the voice and then went into mainstream institutions um the degree to which anyone or people of color in high-powered positions in those institutions. Has that changed in the last 20 years? Has that level of really strong independence um, that we saw 20 years ago translated into leadership into our mainstream structures? Um, I think that it's not about leadership, okay. per se. I think it's a... Okay, maybe I'm splitting hairs. Mm -hmm. right? It's about money. So... The voice was able to do what it did because it was financially viable. It paid the journalists and it was able to pay the journalists because it got advertising and uh, it got revenue from advertising, got revenue from actually selling the paper. And so if there's an economic model that works, then you can sustain um, brilliant, diverse journalism you know, and same way I mentioned um, Chedo and other black um, and Asian film collectives before, and it was all about funding. You know, they were financially viable. And so it's how do we make sure that whatever model we have, whether that's through the license fee, through the BBC, 
whether that's through um, private money, such as The Voice, um, how is that funded? I'll give a quick example. So I worked in Scotland for, for a while, and uh, the Scottish government at one point decided that it was going to try and save money by putting all of its adverts online. Um, I can't remember what year this was, um, but it was in the kind of um, 2010, maybe, something like that. Um, that one thing of trying to save money almost crippled um, uh, the Scottish, or looked like it was going to cripple um, the Scottish um, newspaper industry because they get so much of their revenue from government advertising, you know. So as such, um, we need to make sure that the government... So that wouldn't be anything to do with leadership. You'd, you'd have the same editors at the Scotsman, at the Herald, at, um, at the Record. It was do with, is there a viable economic model? And so we need to look at the economic models and how we finance them. Mm-hmm. I want to get to um, the Nagamanchetti case. And, and of course, you wrote a brilliant, brilliant blog on this. Um, And, you know, the case in terms of the BBC and in terms of that, you know, particular issue, you know, flagged a whole bunch of um, issues that that exist in our institution. Um, Just give me your view on that particular case, but what's what it symbolises, what it's reflective of in terms of um, our mainstream institutions. The the problem with the case is that it it's a, that small case highlights um, a multitude of problems. So um, it highlights um, problems with the complaints procedure at the BBC. It highlights um, whether institutions really want um, diversity or whether they want the appearance of diversity. It highlights because um, it highlights um, the issue of um, how people of colour navigate um, white spaces, which is what she was trying to do when she was answering that question. Um, it highlights um, uh, accountability because um, there seems to have been an uproar at the BBC. It seems to have been plunged into crisis. And yet, while Nagamanchetti was temporarily, um, uh, you know, either chastised or she was, you know, there was a finding against her, um, there, she, her... Her wrongdoing did not plunge the BBC into crisis, and yet it was bad enough for her to be found um, to have broken some rules. And yet, the um, editorial, um, the the executive complaints unit, the executive committee, um, possibly even the BBC board, but I'm not sure about that. Um, they have taken actions which have plunged the entire corporation into into crisis. And yet no one individual or even group seems to have been chastised or punished in, in any way. And so it's, it also brings up issues of, of accountability as well. 
I mean, what should happen next um, in terms of solutions? What would be your view on what um, the BBC and like-minded institutions do to really start to tackle this? Because it was clear that they're, you know, in terms of accountability, but also in terms of no one really understanding what was going on here. What, what would you say could be done in the future that would be better? Okay. So the immediate thing that needs to be done is um, we need to make sure that we restore confidence in the BBC. The BBC is... I live in China and the BBC is has got an amazing reputation. It is possibly the best export um, that Britain has. And so we need to make sure that we restore confidence in the BBC. It is, it is a brilliant institution. And... The way you do that when you do something wrong is to is for the BBC to explain what it did wrong and how it would make sure that it didn't happen again and for there to be some level of accountability. So that's the first thing that has to happen. On this, the small micro level of the actual incident itself, we need to find ways to restore accountability or not accountability in the BBC and restore confidence that people have in the accountability of, of the BBC. And so um, just reversing the decision, which is what has happened, and then thinking we can just go back to the status quo um, is, I don't think, is a way of restoring confidence and trust in the BBC. So there needs to be a post-mortem by the BBC, or if not the BBC, by Ofcom, um, uh, which is the regulator to decide what's gone wrong. And I'm not the only one saying this. Ofcom have said this. So Ofcom have said that you can't, the Director General can't simply reverse the decision of the um, Executive Complaints Unit and of his Executive Committee without explaining why he's reversed it. Because either... There is a process which went wrong, which which is why he had to step in, in which case we need to look at what the process was that went wrong. Whatever the whatever the managerial process is, whatever the um, uh, corporate processes are that went wrong, we need to look at those so we can correct them. Or the processes are fine and it's the people interpreting and executing them did, made a mistake, in which case we need to look at the personnel who have executed... <laughs> The co- uh, incorrectly executed the correct processes. And so either the processes need to change or the personnel need to change or the personnel need to be retrained. But something needs needs to happen. And Ofcom recognised this, which is why they're currently investigating and which is why we invited Ofcom to take part um, yesterday in the, um, uh, in the debate. And uh, they said they thought it'd be inappropriate at this point to take part in the debate, precisely because they are trying to investigate the BBC as what went wrong. What was interesting is that the BBC, is that Ofcom published its annual report um, yesterday on on the BBC. They do an annual report on the BBC. And one of its major findings, I'm sure I'm going to quote it wrong, but it was about how the BBC lacks transparency into how it, um, uh, how it acts. And 
what exemplified that or what illustrated that was that Runnymede Trust, in organising the event yesterday, they invited every single one of the executive committee because they knew that we'd be talking about the executive committee, the BBC executive committee. They invited every single member of the executive committee to take part. And uh, um, not only did they not take part, but they didn't even bother to respond to the Runnymede Trust. And we know that and Runnymede Trust know that they, that the executive committee received the invites, because you could say, well, maybe they didn't receive them. But we know that they received them because we, they received an email from a relatively high um, senior member of the BBC, a person of colour, saying, why have you invited the executive committee and not me? All right? And so I was slightly vexed. And so that meant that, and we hadn't sent this person the email, and so that meant the executive committee must have received the invites. They must have then discussed the invites with the person of colour, the relatively senior person of colour. And yet they still didn't respond to running me trust, even just to politely decline. So that, and I don't think Running Me Trust took it personally, but it illustrates the very point that Ofcom is making about the lack of transparency and accountability that the BBC feels it owes um, its, um, owes people, you know, because the very least, I think, Running Me Trust, it's, it's one thing if I invite them, I mean, who am I? I'm one person, you know. It's it's even one thing if Race Beats invites them. In the even though Race Beat is a brilliant organisation, it's a relatively new young organisation. It's been going less than a year, but Running Me Trust has been going decades. Yeah. You know, it's 50 a, years. Yeah. It's a it's a serious um, part of the establishment. You know, um, so it just seemed bizarre to me. I mean, like properly bizarre behaviour not to respond to running me trust. Now, Marcus, you've been campaigning to increase representation of women, disabled people and ethnic minorities in film and television. What are, I guess, some of the key facts and stats in terms of lack of diversity? And what do you feel, therefore, is the, the impact of this in terms of what we see? Um, key stats, oh, there's just too many to mention. <laughs> so if you look at the um, number of um, programmes which are directed by women um, in prime time, number of directors, you're getting, I think it's something like 20% um, of um, programmes in prime time are directed by women. Um, if you look at just the overall work, when you, when you look at the number of black people directing programmes, um, you're talking for, in prime time, you're talking about 1%, um, sometimes at best 2%. You know, um, if you're looking at um, disabled people, depending on how you define disabled, but if you're actually looking at visibly disabled, um, uh, you're talking about within the film industry, so it's different from television, but if you're looking at the film industry, you're talking about 0.3%. 
um, you know, when we talk about the male gaze, um, 80% of what you're watching on television is literally through the male gaze. You know, how on earth am I going to be able to um, understand um, the, the world and the values and what it's like to be a disabled person if they're not even directing, it's 0.3%. It's, you know, I'm, I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to understand what the world is like. And uh, same way when it comes to all those different, different groups. And it, it comes down fundamentally to a human rights issue. You know, we have to, fundamental to human rights is the right to speech, is freedom of speech. And freedom of speech is meaningless if you're not given access to the platform to be heard. And so if you're not, so therefore, fundamentally, it's a freedom of speech issue. Tell me a little bit more about the campaign. I know you've been working with the likes of um, Lenny Henry, Adrian Lester and others to um, try and diversify. You know, could you tell or detail um, some of the campaign, um, some of the activities and, and what you are proposing as a solution to some of this these issues? Yeah, I think it's be too grand to call it, to even give it a singular as a campaign, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I wish that in what having worked in the industry and talking and working in the industry and talking to other people who are interested in these kind of things, what you're what I'm doing, what other people are doing is that you just see possible solutions and you see things which might be going wrong. Um, and so what you're doing is you're just trying to highlight that to people in positions of power and saying, Things might be better if we did this. Things might be better if we did that. So, you know, um, and you do get some victories. And so, for example, um, going back to the idea of it being about finance, um, local newspapers are really struggling and local newspapers are fundamental to British democracy. You know, what is happening in for your local MP, keeping your, your local MP... Um, accountable to the electorate. Local newspapers are fundamental to that. If you do away with local newspapers, you are weakening the foundations, one of the basic foundations of democracy. And so recognising that, the BBC actually funds around 150 local journalists to work in local newspapers. So that's, that's great, it's, you know. And, but all the arguments... Um, for them doing that with regards to local journalism, apply to BAME um, press, you know, because um, BAME um, uh, disproportionately we vote less, um, we engage um, less with the whole electoral process, not just in voting, but going to local councils um, and understanding what's happening with planning permission and what have you. We we engage less, and so it's really important that we have a, a press, that we have journalism that actually does that for us. So I said for all those issues, the funding that the BBC gives to um, local journalism, they should give that to The Voice, they should give that to Eastern Eye, they should give that to um, uh, you know, uh, Black Ballad, they should give that to a multitude of BME publications. And I proposed that in February and uh, what are you now, October? And last week, 
they've changed their policy. And so that works. So it wasn't, you know, it's, as I said, it's not a singular campaign. But it's a huge win. It's a, it's a yeah. massive win. Yeah. It's a massive win because it, what it hopefully means is that you talk to um, any of these publications and if they have a, a journalist for free who will be able to report on... You, you would not be able to... So if you want to have a court reporter... The Voice can't, or Eastern Eye can't afford to send somebody to sit in court all day, you know. But this, this is what this person can do now, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'm I'm over the moon. I got <laughs> I got the email. I was in Beijing. I got the email, and you know, I I jumped out of bed, and um, my wife was like, "Don't wake up the boy," <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, so it is a it is a massive win. At the same time, um, you know, there are other things that we're pushing for. You know, so uh, the film industry has been able to grow massively and increase its staff massively generally um, due to tax breaks. You know, again, it's about the finance. Okay. See how we have, have a theme coming yeah. <laughs> here? It's about the finance. And so we're saying, well, if it's grown the labor force of the film industry this much, what if we actually... Um, gave a financial incentive by giving tax breaks for if you employ more women or if you employ more disabled people, you know. Maybe a film will be, um, you can get tax break in a film that wouldn't have been greenlit before. It will be greenlit now because financially it's more viable if you have a women, woman scriptwriter or a black um, director of photography, you know. And so if we can get those tax breaks. That would be great. Um, I know that, you know, Alex Mahone at Channel 4, when she was speaking to the House of Lords, she thinks it's a good idea. Um, Kevin Backhurst from Ofcom, when he was speaking to the um, select committee, he thinks that um, there's real credibility in this this idea in tax breaks. Um, So it's not some kind of fringe, mad idea. There's three states in America which are implementing some form of tax breaks, all with different criteria. Um, The French equivalent of the BFI that give out film grants, they all top, it's not tax breaks, but they all top up the amount of money they give you if you employ women in certain key roles. And so it's acknowledging that you can, if you say that we'll give you more money, whether that's through the grant we give you or whether that's through a tax break, if you implement certain, you are, you are rewarded for implementing certain diversity criteria, you know, you can see that is happening in different places in the world. And I, I think it would be great if we did it here. So it's all number of different things. What, what we're not fighting for, um, and I don't know anybody um, who's fighting for, is trying to fight for more training schemes. Okay. You know? So it's normally tied to some kind of finance, some structural change. And, and you're talking about real, so you're talking about directing, script writing, and, and you know, really where those tax breaks lead to positions where the talent, you know, gets an opportunity to really flourish. Yes, possibly. So, um, again, a lot of this is modelled with regards to, because um, as I said, I worked in Scotland for a bit. And so with... With Scotland to qualify to be an out-of-London production, they didn't um, tie it to key roles. What they 
tied it to, or one of the criteria that they tied it to, they tied it to a number of criteria, but one of the criteria that they tied it to was the percentage of salary spend. Okay? Now, this is really important. So it's not percentage of workforce, not headcount. Because if it was headcount, so if it was 50% of the staff had to be Scottish, what you could do is then just get 50% of your researchers, runners, tea boys, tea ladies being <laughs> Scottish, and then all those really important roles um, still being the directors, DOPs, precise, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, not being Scottish. If you did it, but if you then looked at the salary proportion, if you tried to do that, um, it, because by definition, those more important roles are paid more, you end up with 80% salary spend not being Scottish. So if you tie it to um, salary spend and say that you want 50% of the salary spend to be for diversity or diverse um, staff, rather women, disabled people, black people, um, Asian people, then you don't have to say that they have to be the director, but it would be impossible if, to not have people in serious... You'd either get people in serious influential positions, like the director or the producer, or you'd get over 50% of your staff working on the film, which would be great training, right? You'd, you'd end up, as I said, if you exclude the really key positions, you'd end up with about 70% of the actual headcount. Um, so in, in that way, if you, so I'm not prescriptive as to how they implement tax breaks. You could do key roles. You could do salary spend. There might be other criteria, but it needs to be really good criteria that would... Um, uh, you know, progress um, diverse talent. Now, your black and white TV blog is excellent. It's my required reading every <laughs> week. Um, I mean... Oh, the, the pressure. The, the pressure. <laughs> the pressure. You've got lots of pressure. Um, it, it was interesting. I think not so long ago, um, Nikki Morgan proposed, um, and I don't know how serious this was, but she was talking about the BBC moving to subscription offer. And and I remember reading one of your blogs talking about Netflix and their model um, and, and how, you know, diversity is an asset in terms of their model. I mean, first and foremost, you know, if you could, for our listeners, explain the Netflix model. But do you think that could work for something like the BBC? Okay. Um, so the, the Netflix model... What they are after is, and the way they get paid is not through advertising, um, and it's not through, so it's not through trying to maximise the size of their audience. What they're trying to do is maximise the size of their subscriber base. So they're constantly trying to make programmes which will specifically, will do, they're doing programmes which will do two things. Programme number one is what will get somebody to subscribe. And then program number two, and sometimes the two things overlap, obviously, is what will keep somebody from not cancelling their subscription. And so um, it's a bit like, think of it in terms of um, football. Sorry to use the sport analogy, but it could be any, it could be any team or any sport. Right? So think of it in terms of football. If what you're trying to do is maximise um, just eyeballs, then the match that you want to always put on is Man City Arsenal, right? You want to do the, the big match constantly, 
right? Because Arsenal. Yeah. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Right? I won't even start. Okay, but you you want that that big big match because that's the one that most people, on average, will watch. However, if you want people to subscribe, you want to make sure that you aren't just doing Arsenal, Man City, that you've got the um, all of the Premier League teams, first division, second division, the third division you haven't even heard of, but th- that person who absolutely loves, I don't know a third division name team, so help me out, anybody, you know, whatever. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, whatever United, that person will subscribe because they, are, they love their team, whereas they won't subscribe if you keep showing Arsenal Man City. If you're trying to maximise eyeballs, which is what the BBC ITV are doing, Arsenal Man City every day. If you're trying to maximise subscription, you need to actually sign up the smaller groups of the third division, second division, what have you. So that's why. So if you think of the football teams as being um, different identities within the UK, all of a sudden, it's not viable to make that comedy about the Asian guy in Cardiff if you're the BBC, because you're thinking, oh, God, I'm going to get such a small audience about the Asian guy in Cardiff. But if you're Netflix, you think, wow, I'm going to get every Asian person in Wales to sign up and they're going to keep on what signing up forever because I've got just this one programme. And so that is how you actually in- increase diversity. That's how why Netflix diversity is such a massive asset to them because they're not trying to maximise per se eyeballs they're maximising subscription. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you think that could work over here? And um, Because I, I, the content is fantastic, you know, um, on Netflix um, yeah. because, you know, every week or every two weeks there's stuff that comes on that is really directly relevant to my personal interests. Um, but also because you get, you know, recommendations, there's other things that you watch as well that might not be quite of... Yeah, my interest, but it just means that I can turn on the television and there's something that I want to watch. Um. So I think there are um, a f- there's a few things we need to make sure that we don't conflate, mm-hmm. right? So we need to make sure that the BBC. Is so if we're referring to could it work if the BBC did this? Is this what you're asking? No, if if BBC or if ITV, if there was a subscription service, if we move towards that, okay, what elements of Netflix could potentially work for okay. for us? The prob. Okay, so again, just go straight back to finance, yep. right? So the problem that um, ITV has right now is that it is an advertising-based model. And so advertisers want eyeballs. They don't care how many subscribers you have. So what you'd need to do for ITV or Channel 4 is actually change the way that it's financed. Whether a subscription model works and you can get enough subscribers to um, finance the kind of programs that you want if you're just a national broadcaster of the size of the UK is questionable, you know, because um, 
Netflix, the reason it can produce all those amazing programs is because its subscriber base is international. So it's a question of scale. So that's the first issue. So then you would say, well, it could possibly work nas nationally if you then do BritBox where you get everything coming together, which is what they're planning on doing. And so that's really interesting. Um, my nervousness about that is for all its criticism, the BBC is, is still pretty, pretty good. You know, um, it's, it is a brilliant organisation. Um, and the problem is that I don't want to see it underfunded. You know, I want to, if anything, I want to see it funded even better. You know, and the concern about subscription is whether that will um, limit its um, funding. I don't want us to take away funding from it. So what we need to do is that right now, the BBC doesn't need to worry about um, eyeballs per se. I mean, it's getting its funding. It's got its license fee, right? And so what we need to do is that culturally, when you work within the BBC, um, the measurement of a programme's success is how many people watch it, right? So even though it doesn't have to be, that's just the culture of, of working there, right? Is how many people watch it. Where, and that is what works against diversity because what you really want is you want all the Asian people in Wales. Sorry, Asian people in Wales. I don't know why I'm using it as an example. But yeah, you, you really want to be able to capture all those different, unique, brilliant, different, diverse communities throughout the UK. And so what you want to, to do for the BBC is start measuring what's called reach and success through reach. You want a programme to be seen as, as a success because it has been able to reach an audience, which no other programme was able to reach, and for people not to worry about the fact that it got a terrible overall rating. So what Netflix does, which is quite clever, is that um, often it doesn't, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it won't reveal its audience ratings because the minute you do, the culture is that that's what, that is the measurement of success. And if when that becomes the measurement of success, that actively works against diversity. Now, trying to change that culture and tell the BBC not to publish its audience ratings is really difficult. And I don't think we'd be able to get there. So what we'd have to do is try and change the culture of valuing reach and reaching smaller audience for the BBC over ratings while still publishing ratings. That is a really difficult culture change. Mm -hmm. But that's what we might have. That's what would I think might be necessary. Necessary, yeah. Um, I just wanted in closing just to um, speak a little bit about journalism and the power of journalism um, and you know reflecting back you know you've been working in this industry for, for a long time um, you've seen a lot of changes and you've been part of the positive changes um, in mainstream media in your opinion do you feel that the power of journalism 
has diminished, particularly with the rise of social media? You know, or what can you say about its importance, particularly at you know a time of Brexit and other major issues? What is the importance of journalism? Oh Lord, I know okay. it's a huge question. Yeah, um, journalism is you know it's it's how you decide to vote. It's how you decide. Um, it decides everything. I mean. It gives you your values. Um, it, um, yeah, so it, it decides absolutely everything. Um, what, with the rise of social media, I don't think it diminishes the power of journalism. Um, I just think that where that power lies is um, slightly harder to discern. So whereas before, um, okay, really easy example. Um, okay, I'm sure you'll be able to help me out here. I'm going to get my dates wrong. Right. But Thatcher Kinnock election, right? I'm pretty sure it's Thatcher Kinnock. And the son did the famous um, front page um, where it had Neil Canuck, um face superimposed on a light bulb. Do you remember this? 87? Yeah, no. but you know, you know the front yeah, page yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, um, last one, please turn out the lights on the country or something, right? Mm. You know, it's a, if he gets in, it's, you know. And everybody was quite, was very easy able to point to that, rightly or wrongly, as being instrumental in deciding how the election was decided. The, the power of the newspapers was very easy to discern. That um, newspaper headline um, is, or front page, is really well known. Every journalist student knows it, what have you. Um, whereas now, um, who on earth can tell you the Facebook um, you know, so we now know that Facebook and social media massively influenced Brexit. No one disputes that. Um, they might dispute whether it was influenced legally or illegally and whatever, but no one disputes that social media influenced Brexit. But can anybody tell you what was the big social media Facebook equivalent of a front page that did that? I, I, I don't know. But that's still the power of journalism. So the the problem is, is the power of journalism is still there. It's just harder for us to see, discern and dissect. So that is what we have to try and do. And it's, and it's a harder job for everybody and anybody working in journalism and studying journalism to try and figure out. Brilliant. Marcus, thank you. Um, how can people get hold of you? Can you give us uh, your blog line? How people can, uh, you know, get onto your blog and see, read your work every week? Every week. <laughs> oh, you know, it's pressure. I, no, seriously, I decided to do the, it was in the new year. I used to do my blog intermittently, like once a month and every two, two times a month or so. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm going to do it every single week. And now it's just hard. But okay, fine. <laughs> so it is. Um, black on white TV um, dot blogspot dot com. Black on white TV dot blogspot dot com. So if you get onto that, 
um, you can then um, just message me through through my email and everything is through that that blog. If you can't remember that, just um, Google um, black and white TV Marcus Ryder. If you if you Google black and white TV, you'll get Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin thing. So that won't help you. So you have to put <laughs> Marcus Ryder. Marcus Ryder, black and white TV, Marcus Ryder. Brilliant. Marcus, thank you. And thank you for listening to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell. If you like this pod, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. It all helps. Um, and you can reach me on Twitter at Derek A. Bard. And I will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.